We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Everybody, stay with Census Fidelity. I'm coming at you on the 20th of March, 2020. Day 47 of Charles's quarantine, I think. I give or take one or two. Wow. And uh, got the uh, stairway to heaven behind us. So if anybody needs some shades, uh, when you're looking at me, put them on. Uh, this is mostly about Charles anyways. Charles, how you doing, bud? Well, you know, as, as you say, day 398. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, it's only day four. Well, day five, I guess, counting Sunday. But it, uh, no, it's it's um, a weird feeling, you know. It, it, I feel like I'm in a Twilight Zone episode, a Twilight Zone episode one of those 50, 50s films like uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still or This Island Earth <laughs> or uh, uh, Invasion from Mars or whatever you like. Mars attacks. Um, Mars going to get stepped in line for the toilet paper is what they've been doing. Go, what is going on down here? Well, you know, War of the Worlds also comes to mind, except in that one, the germs are on our side. So, you know, but the, uh, no, it, 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 it's funny. Uh, normality has returned to a degree, uh, only in the sense that I made my weekly permitted run to the supermarket mm -hmm. here in uh, beautiful Trumau. And things have returned to normality to the degree that there was lots of toilet paper. As opposed to the last time I was there, the weekend, with all the toilet paper, except the last six that I, I found hidden under the Kleenex. <laughs> the, uh, because people didn't touch Kleenex. And this, you know, <laughs> you got to ask yourself this about people. And everybody I know that I've spoken to in New York, in Germany, in England, in France, in Italy, here in Los Angeles, in everybody I've talked to has all said the same thing. Toronto, the under the uh, the uh, toilet paper vanished, but the Kleenex was still there. <laughs> and you know, I, I don't want to be crude, but okay, have you ever been in a situation where your nose is runny and you, there's no Kleenex and you don't have a handkerchief? Mm. So what do you do? You run to the men's room and you grab some toilet paper. That's what you do. I think almost everyone's done that. <laughs> okay. Take it from me. The process can be reversed. <laughs> yes, it's true. It goes so, both ways. <laughs> it does indeed. Or they get you coming and going as you, as you prefer. So I, I mentioned this. So that, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever find yourself in a position where 
all the toilet paper vanishes again. Don't be afraid to get a box or seven of Kleenex. No one else will. I saw a report that plumbers are going to be busy because the plumbing is going to be all screwed up from people flushing things down the, you know, commodes. Well, I, Kleenex, Kleenex is no worse than toilet paper. Oh, now, other, things. other things, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're going to start using telephone books, book pages and so forth, which I guess now there are no more telephone books, so you're going to be hard up. I was in a business trying to sell that once, and I asked the guy uh, who buys the who has the phone book. Uh, hard to get somebody to buy a five hundred dollar ad in a book no one has. Well, that's yeah, that's a big problem. I mean, uh, you, when you think of all the uh, all the things that we uh, that certainly in my time I've seen vanish: rotary phones, phone booths. You remember how it was uh, before when you wanted to make a call? Mm -hmm. You had to find a restaurant or a gas station, or a phone booth. Yep. And even the phone booths, you know, when I, when I was a kid, they were wonderful because the Superman himself was, had enough privacy to change it. <laughs> then they turned these little thingies with um, uh, just yeah, the, the phone and a yeah. back to it. Yeah. Uh, there was a um, very funny Mad Magazine uh, picture that showed Superman looking confused at one of these, <laughs> wondering what he was supposed to do, you know. But <laughs> thank God they're gone now. They'd be just, they'd be taken out by the government if they were around right now. Oh gosh, yes. Well, I mean now, um, no. This this all I can say is, you you know you're you're in the in the terrible position of saying this disease better be bad enough to justify all this. <laughs> You see what's wrong with that statement? <laughs> yes. Because if it is bad enough, it's going to be really awful. <laughs> A lot of people are going to be uh, leaving us. But if it isn't, <laughs> then I'm afraid there's going to be a, a very unpleasant aftermath. Yes. Yeah, some, guy, I, some guy on Joe Rogan's show talked about it's supposed to be about 408,000 dead could possibly. I'm going, we got a long way. We got some catching up to do if we're going to make that way, man. <laughs> Well, and let's hope we don't, but, yeah. you know, it's either way, it's going to take quite a while for things to uh, return to normal. But, you know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about how they return to normal, quote unquote, because nothing is ever quite the same after one of these things. Uh, New Orleans, up until last week, was doing what New Orleans did, and they had a great Mardi Gras and all that. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have thought that possible 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, everybody was saying it's the end of the uh, the end of the uh, Crescent City. No more New Orleans. Well, didn't happen. New Orleans, against all odds, returned. Similarly, uh, I remember at the time of nine eleven, people said they'll never fly again. Well, they do. Um, I guess it was Hermann Obert, who was a German scientist, whom we captured. One of our Russians, as they say, instead of one of the Soviet Russians, but. He, um, he made an interesting statement that people accommodate. So to give you an example, and give you the example he used, you've got 8 million people, well, well, we'll say 6 million, forget the outer boroughs. You've got 6 million people living on the island of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. News comes, a man-eating tiger is loose on the island. Well, what happens? For about a week, everybody hides in their houses, mm -hmm. you know, and 
the tiger runs around grabbing whatever he can find out, which isn't much. Mm-hmm. But people get used to it. And so they start, you know, they're back out. Every now and then, somebody disappears. <laughs> and the tiger eats. Remember, we're talking about six million people. Yeah, yeah. So away goes the tiger. Well, people accommodate. The uh, Every now and then, you know, maybe one, once every week, you lose seven people out of the six million. But people accommodate to that. Mm-hmm. Then they release another tiger. All right. Everybody hides in their rooms again for a week. Now 14 people are disappearing. But that's 14 out of 6 million. People accommodate. And so it goes. You could release 100 tigers on the streets of Manhattan. And eventually the 6 million would accommodate. Mm-hmm. That's human nature. Yeah. It's and the other the other thing too, of course, is that you know people have been afraid of this happening for a long time. Uh, what do you think, really, our zombie apocalypse popularity was about? Yeah, exactly. It's about this happening, and now it has. I'll bet nobody you know can uh, force himself to watch The Walking Dead. <laughs> nobody wants to be seeing that right now. Yeah. The uh, the week before uh, quarantine, I was happily watching the newly discovered Hammer House of Horrors uh, episodes in the 80s that have been released onto YouTube. And I was having a great time watching those things. Can't do it right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm watching comedies, old comedies. Mm -hmm. Listen to a lot of old music, but... It's going to be a while before I can uh, I can look a, a horror film straight in the face because I'm living in it. I don't I don't need the uh, I don't Longer. need the phony one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, same thing happened. Sadly enough, with The Walking Dead, mm-hmm. um, when uh, I was taking care of a, a declining relative who was dying, and all the time it took him to die, and then for a while after, I couldn't face The Walking Dead. I couldn't do it. Because the real thing was too present. But in time, being a human being, I was able to do it again. Can't now. So, no, sorry? No, so, so I was just going to say, so Charlie, we got, we got a long way to go on this. It could get worse. It could. It, it could get very, it very, could get, it could get much worse. It could, it could get better. It might get better pretty quickly. Yeah. And some uh, pros it, right now, we got communist schools out, no abortion. or No abortion. There's, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, you got to bear in mind too, ladies and gentlemen, that none of this is random. And when I say that, I don't mean there's a deep, dark conspiracy. I mean, there's the hand of God, you know. Mm-hmm. God's still in charge. God knows what he's doing, even though we don't. And it's also important to remember that at the bottom of all our fears, as we discussed before the show, is our own death. And we have to understand that's what we're really afraid of. And, you know, with good reason, that's not a, not a fun thing. I mean, even though our Lord knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus mm-hmm. wept. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. my, um, my favorite aunt died uh, two weeks ago. And I was going to go out to the funeral in New York before all this started up. Ain't going no place now. 
but um, she, um, you know, at the time I was just beside myself. Now I'm not exactly happy, but I'm glad that in her debilitated state, as she was, she's not having. To, she's not going to have to go through all this nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know. So I mean, again, it's not like I'm happy about her her, her demise, but gosh, I. I can't imagine what she would have done with it. You know, glad my parents aren't around to see it. Um, if I could be assured of heaven, then I'd be sad that I wasn't, that I were around to see it. (laughs) But, you know, again, it it might, it might end up being something of a flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't seem likely, but I hope. And if it is, it'll make things difficult for the various, uh, civil and ecclesiastical authorities but uh yeah, i'll take the embarrassment I'll, yeah. I'll take the embarrassment <laughs> well yeah i mean i would rather that than to find out all this was fully justified and yeah. or worse yet not nearly enough yeah exactly you know they should have been confining us four months ago what <laughs> <laughs> but but it hadn't even broken no 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 they, they should have they should have just sucked us away four months ago <laughs> Although, you know, this might be the best way to raise adolescence. That's very true, too. <laughs> Lock them away, no deal, and then let them out when they turn 21. <laughs> yeah, you may see the sun now. <laughs> All right, kid. You're a grown-up now. Have a good day. Here's a ball. Don't hurt anybody. Yeah, pretty much. My, my dad always said that, uh, you know, he thought that life would be much easier for parents if they could lock their kids away on the 13th birthday and just release them on the 21st. Is that eight years of peace? That'd be great. Good luck. Yep. No squabbling, no nothing. And then on that, on that glorious 21st birthday, you unlock the door. Okay, kid, you're on your own. Bye-bye. You know, but no, anyway, but we do have sort of a topic, kind of a topic today. Yes, yes. Um, Christendom and counter-revolution, I guess, is the best way I could describe it. Uh, so what am I going to do? I am going to launch into something of a monologue, but feel free to stop me when you have questions. Not a problem. And what is that monologue going to be? I'm glad you asked that question. It will be about 75 hours. No, 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 nothing like that. I could do this in a much shorter time than that. It will be basically a quick narrative of how the thing that we called Christendom came to be, mm-hmm. followed by a rather somewhat more detailed look at how it unraveled, leaving us where we are, trapped in our houses. Well, all right, I'm, I'm not going to throw the, the disease in there, but mm-hmm. being trapped myself, it's kind of on my mind, as you might say. <laughs> anyway, well, first and foremost, one thing I've learned at this place, there where I'm attending, a, a theory, not so much a theory, but an insight is the best way to put it. One of the professors who actually I've never had, brilliant man, but I've never had his class yet. That's his later on. And he gave a lecture that we all attended. It was an academic lecture. And he made a point which really, really I thought was quite insightful. And I will share it with you. It was that at the Last Supper, Two things happened. The Davidic kingship of Christ was united 
with the just established communio of the church. Well, that's an important thing because we think of the church, of course, as Christ's mystical body, which it is. Mm-hmm. We think of it as the spouse of Christ, which it is. We think of it as many, many things, but we tend to forget that it is also a society, not just an organization, because the Latin communio, which the Greeks have as koinonia, and the, uh, our Slavic friends as sobornost, is much more than a mere organization. It is an organic living body. Uh, that's important to remember because it, it will explain a great deal of history for you. So keep that in mind. All right. So what happened? Well, for the first 250, 275 years of the church's history, from Pentecost on, the church spread uh, through the Roman Empire and into certain other countries, peripheral countries, and India and elsewhere. Uh, several interesting things can be observed about it, though. The first are the two groups that joined the church in the city of Rome initially. This is a fascinating, fascinating thing. The two groups were the opposite ends of the social ladder. The old Roman nobility, the pre-imperial nobility, the Republican aristocracy, who despite the horrible Roman corruption and so forth, many of their members had tried to hold on to what were considered the old Roman values for no reason other than that they were their inheritance. You see where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. with that kind of sort of um, stoic kind of thing. That's on the one hand, on the one extreme. The other were the slaves. Now, why did the faith first convert those two peoples, those two classes? Well, interesting. The first, it gave the old Roman nobility a reason for their long watch. It made, it took what their ancestors had done and made something real out of it. Because those old Roman virtues were in and of themselves not worth all that much. I mean, they were nice, naturally speaking. But the faith supernaturalized them. And the as far as the slaves went, we gave their lives meaning as well. They made human beings out of them to the faith. So that's why those are the first two classes that were hit. As the faith spread, it was an interesting thing. It spread initially in the cities. It took a long time to get out to the countryside. Why is this? Because, and this is an important thing to bear in mind, there are certain realities in human nature that never really change and always have to be taken into account. Country dwellers tend to be more conservative with a small C than city people. City people will get involved with the latest ideas, the new ideas that are coming down the back. The people in the country, well, I don't know. My pappy didn't like that. So the, uh, the a time came uh, after the church was legalized when in Gaul, for instance, or in Spain, the cities were primarily Christian, but paganism was still to be found out in the boondocks. Now this is why we call, we call it pagan. 
because it comes, it means country dwellers. The uh, just you know, the paganos, it's it's peasants, country people. They held on to paganism the uh, the longest, which, as you'll find out shortly, is very ironic considering what would happen later. But there is that intent, innate, small c conservatism. And while I'm here, I might as well make a point about conservatism. It, it's kind of a meaningless phrase. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it all depends on what it is you're trying to conserve. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that there are some of us who, by nature, are more nostalgic or romantic, whatever you like. We don't like giving up whatever we've had just because we've had it. Now, this is not always a good thing. You know, sometimes you're holding on to something that's pretty bad, but it's a certain a certain mental type goes that way. Mm-hmm. And human beings in general have a tendency toward it, a kind of mindless, meaningless holding on to things. Uh, one of the one example of this that comes to mind, believe it or not, it's amazing what you'll find reading in the food papers, the food sections of uh, major newspapers. <laughs> Years ago in the LA Times, there was this lady who was relating how her daughter had asked her why when she cooked a roast, she would always cut the edges off. No, she always, it, it didn't add or take away anything. So what was the point? Well, she had to tell her daughter and she's the one writing the article. You know, I don't know, it's my mother always did it. So she couldn't ask her mother because her mother was dead. But she asked it on. And the aunt said, well, our, our grandmother did it. She says, well, do you know why? I said, no, no, I have no idea. But the, the aunt did some uh, research, and she ended up finding an old cousin who was like 98 or something. who was very elderly. but had actually known the great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. You know, she says, oh, I can tell you why, uh, why your great-grandmother would cut the edges off the roasts. See, when they first came to America, they were living in New York. They were in this crammed little apartment with a small oven. <laughs> so she would cut the edges off so the roast would fit. <laughs> and she, okay, well, <laughs> see, that, that kind of conservatism, and it is a sort of conservatism. You know, it's pointless. It's meaningless. But we're like that. We, we really are. And another, another story like that, uh, when Nicholas II was crowned czar, he first came to the throne. He was, I think, in the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. And he's, you know, he had never explored the whole place before, even though he'd lived there all his life. But now he's the czar, so he figures, you know, look around. And he finds this soldier standing in the middle of a courtyard on guard. But there's nothing there. It's the middle of a courtyard. So he goes up to the soldier and says, well, why are you here? And he says, well, because this is one of our side stations. And it's, you know, my, my turn to guard it. But what is here to guard? He says, I don't know, Your, your Majesty. It's, it's just one of, the, one of our regular stations. You know, we have a set of them throughout the palace, and this is one of them. So he goes to the captain of the guard, and he says, why is there a man there? He says, well, I don't know, Your Majesty. It's just one of the required guard posts, and that's it. I don't know. Well, they do some research. It turned out that Catherine the Great, about 150 years earlier, when that courtyard, when that section of the palace was new, and that courtyard was grassy, had planted a sapling there. 
and she assigned a guard to watch over the sapling so that nobody should kill the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually it died, and the whole thing was paved over. But nobody ever thought to remand the order. So <laughs> for about 150 years, however long it was, one guard always had to be on duty guarding that place. Well, uh, the czar rescinded the, the order because he, he thought that probably that, that bad power could yeah. be used elsewhere. So I, I mention this because this, this is part of human nature. Mm-hmm. So I also mention it because the, the uh, continuance of paganism in country districts, uh, many, many centuries later, would be one of the ingredients in the creation of the age-old religion of Wicca, which is an age-old religion that goes all the way back to the 1920s. Mm-hmm. It's important. Not too many age-old religions are only a century old, <laughs> so you keep that in mind. But it was this reality that um, uh, allowed them to get, come up with the notion that they were somehow carrying on a pre-Christian religion that had been preserved in nooks and crannies of Europe. It's not true, but anyway. So moving right along, um, something amazing happened in the year of our Lord, 311, 312. Constantine the Great had his great victory at the Milvian Bridge. Now, it's good to remember that prior to this time, Armenia, Georgia, and not not the one in the American South, but the the one Stalin came from, Mm -hmm. Ethiopia, uh, had all become officially Catholic. They actually beat Rome to adopting the religion. But in uh, that's why when, when Armenians boast to theirs is the oldest Christian country, they're right. They, uh, they I think it was about three. It was three hundred three A.D. Armenia became officially Christian, state religion. Now. I'll say something about that in a minute. So, uh, 312, we have the Edict of Milan. Christianity is tolerated. Constantine favors it. But in 378 AD, a very, very important thing happened. And that was what was called the Edict Thessalonica, by which Catholicism became the state religion of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Now, this question of state religion is very, very important because I'm going to make a, a statement that might sound sort of crazy. There is no separation of church and state. You it doesn't me. exist. It's not wrong. It just doesn't happen. Now, there may be separation between the state and my church. Oh, yes, that can happen. You bet. But every state has an animating philosophy, an established faith that establishes the rules, that gives the leadership its legitimacy. Uh, with the Soviet Union was communism. And that acted as the state church. It did what a state church does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's credo was there is no God and Lenin is his prophet, but, you know, you got to take what you got. Uh, our own United States, it was a sort of odd mix of pan-Protestantism and deism with a sort of religion of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would include Catholics and Jews. And then when the moral uh, consensus that it had lived off of, you know, Protestants, Catholics, Jews, all pretty much thought the same things were right and wrong. After that collapsed in the 60s, 
and after mainstream Protestantism collapsed, the religion of the country began to die. And of course now it's, well, now what's left of it in God we trust and the Pledge of Allegiance and all that uh, is what the Supreme Court calls uh, civic deism, mm-hmm. which is permitted because it's come, to, it's come to be meaningless. And I'm not kidding. That's exactly why they say it's okay because it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, that's just me. I, I find that kind of bizarre, but what the heck? Anyway, moving along. These are all concepts that are important to get down. Mm -hmm. Every society has a state church. It's only a question of which one. Every society has a ruling class, a ruling minority, and a a, a ruled majority. Mm -hmm. What makes one different from another is who are the rulership and who are the ruled. Mm -hmm. What what is their system of reference? What, What do they believe? What do they do? That's what makes it different. But you will never have a society that does not have a state church and does not have a rulership. Never. And one of the problems with us is that we pretend. And that that pretense is ruinous. Absolutely ruinous. But I digress. So, with the uh, Edict of Thessalonica, uh, Theodosius the Great, as I say, made the Roman Empire officially Catholic. And he did something interesting. He made baptism entrance into Roman citizenship. So when you were baptized, you became a Roman citizen. Now, this is an important concept, too, because Roman citizenship belonged in the beginning only to a minority of people. You remember what a big deal it was that St. Paul was a Roman citizen. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't crucify a citizen. You had to behead him Mm -hmm. because citizenship in the empire was a big, big thing. So when Theodosius said, from now on, baptism confers citizenship in the empire, that that was huge. And we, we tend not to see the relevance because we don't think in these terms anymore. But that was really the creation of Christendom because from that time on, the idea of the empire in particular and of Catholic monarchy in general being, you might say, the outer shell of the inner thing, which was the church, and the two of them together being sides of the same organism, mm-hmm. uh, the Respublica Christiana, the Christian Republic. A very, very important idea. And so even when the empire fell, and it's important to remember too that the people who lived through it didn't think of the empire as falling. Mm-hmm. Theodosius's two sons divided it between them, Arcadius the east, Honorius in the west, but it was still held to be one. And when the last Roman emperor in the west was overthrown in 476, the guy who did it, a German tribesman named Odoacer, sent the crown back to Constantinople and said, now we have only one emperor again whom he considered himself in some ways subject to. Mm-hmm. And the various kingdoms that grew up on the soil of the uh, Roman Empire, the Franks, the Visigoths, eventually even the Anglo-Saxons after they became Christian, they all considered that they were somehow still under and part of the empire, the empire conceived of as the temporal side of that body of which the church was the religious. All right. 
Well, there are also, now understand when I say this, human beings being human beings, there are all sorts of disputes and difficulties. Popes and emperors in the West and popes and uh, patriarchs and emperors in the East fought back and forth. Everybody squabbled over everything, kind of like a parish today. Because one of the downsides of the church is that it's filled with human beings. Mm -hmm. But what's important, again, with a society is to look not simply at what it does, but its own conception of what it thinks it ought to be. Mm -hmm. Because that is another thing that differs one society from another. Uh, this thing that was called Christendom, the Respublica Christiana, the Occident, the Abendland, whatever you want to call it. Um, ultimately, at its best, you believe that freedom was the freedom to follow God's law. That was true freedom. Not somebody to do whatever you wanted, whether it was good or not, but the right and the ability to do what God demands out of each of us. The role of the state was to keep people from starving or being killed so they'd have time to worry about their eternal salvation. And that too is why the, the state, as it was then, assisted the church in its, in its uh, duty. All right. Now, as you can see, I'm skipping over all sorts of things. The, War of the, the Wars of the Roses, the Hundred Years' War. Even, I'm even skipping over the Black Plague, which would be very germane today. Uh, but I'm, I'm rushing forward to the fact that in time, this thing, this amorphous Europe, this Christendom, this Abendland, uh, in a life-and-death struggle with the Muslims since the 600s, uh, it did something strange. It exploded overseas, into the Americas, into Africa, into Southeast Asia, into Australia, everywhere. Unfortunately, this huge expansion over the globe, which allowed the conversion of untold millions of, of pagans and they're being brought to the sacraments, unfortunately, it happened just at the time that that synthesis that I've described was falling, going to fall to pieces. And that brings us to the first wave of revolution, which over the last 500 years has successively shattered what was and brought us to what is. And that is, as I say, the Reformation. Now, one of the things you got to bear in mind about the old system that I described earlier was that it was organic, but if you weren't part of it, you weren't part of it. So in other words, Muslims, Jews, heretics could not be citizens. They, they were outside. Mm -hmm. um, usually what that meant was that you'd, uh, uh, like with the Jews who were scattered through Christendom, they had their own, uh, their own quarters, the ghettos, which were, I'm sure, not pleasant places to live in. But what people forget is that they ran themselves. Mm -hmm. You couldn't eat pork in the ghetto. I mean, if you, as a Christian, went into the ghetto and tried to eat pork, it, it wasn't happening. <laughs> not only that, you had to be out by, day, by uh, sundown. Mm -hmm. In other words, we forgot. That there, now, this was also, I must say, the fact that uh, 
in major trading places, usually the merchants of various other countries had their own quarters where they lived under their own laws. So it, it, it is an interesting system, deserves to be uh, uh, explored in more detail. We don't have any time, so we're not. When the uh, Protestant revolt came along, the reason why Luther and Calvin and John Knox and Cramner and all those guys succeeded in a way that previous heretics really hadn't was that they secured the assistance of local rulers. And Henry VIII, uh, also Gustavus Vasa in Sweden, uh, Christian III, I guess, in Denmark, and innumerable local German princes. These guys basically did a switch. They established the Anglican, the Lutheran, the Calvinist uh, denomination in their lands as the church. So now those who held to the old religion, to Catholicism, were on the outside in the same position as Jews and Muslims and heretics. So all the laws that had been there to maintain the integrity of the faith were now used against members of the faith. Mm -hmm. And the uh, very often, this was done by an appeal to the past. You know, this is why it was so important for the, uh, the Church of England, say, to assert that it was the rightful successor of the work of St. Augustine of Canterbury and so on. And that this Italian mission were filled with imposters. Well, an interesting thing happened, though, and that is that the Reformation had several wings some more conservative than others. And looking at England in particular, I mean, you had, you had what I'm about to relay had a sort of equivalent on the continent in the Thirty Years' War, which is worth exploring, but very complex. It would take too much time, so we're not going to. It's also not directly germane to our story in America. But Henry VIII took over the church in his country, and he gave away the these seized and gave away the monastic lands to um, various supporters. But you know, life is filled with unintended consequences. Those the grandsons of those supporters, a lot of them took up a very extreme form of Protestantism. You know, Anglicanism is not what you would call a terribly logical faith. But Calvinism is. Calvinism is very logical because it was invented by a Frenchman. You know, so the French, I, I don't want to say that we're better thinkers than anyone else. I really don't want to say that. A little but, biased. What's that? A little biased there. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Very accepting. <laughs> Self-accept. Listen, I'm from California. Self-acceptance is so important. <laughs> it really is. And... You know, the fact that the French are such clear, rational thinkers as composed to all the woolly heads that surround them, you know, it's, it's, it, it's the way life is. It's, it's, you know, and for that reason, though, and, and actually I, I do exaggerate slightly, but the French do put a very high premium on logic in the way that a lot of other peoples don't. And so there's a phrase in French, which you have to say it in French because there's no, no I mean, you can say it in English, but it doesn't have the same oomph. And it's the false idée claire, the false, clear idea. 
It's logic is beautiful, wonderful. It's 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 a joy to behold. There's only one little tiny problem with it. It's wrong. <laughs> but it's a wonderful system of thought. It's beautiful. It's just it's all a crock. That's that's the one itsy bitsy problem with it. And the very concept of the fossé de clair, only a Frenchman could come up with this, you know, because uh, French humor is often self-demeaning in that way, if you see what I'm saying, self-deprecatory. It Part of being the most logical people in Europe is realizing that you yourself. <laughs> so, you know, if everyone else could be insane, Simple logic would be would say that <laughs> Ron's very much of an Englishman, although they are woolly But he uh, he told me years ago that uh, out of every three people, two are sane and one's goofy. <laughs> so if you're at a dinner party, you know, you turn to the person next to you, <laughs> he looks all right. Turn to the lady next, she looks fine. Maybe it's me. <laughs> You know, as they, as they say, what is it? Uh, every family has at least one member they're kind of embarrassed about and try to hide from other people. And if you don't know who it is, it probably is you. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, well, and more importantly, my family apologized for letting me out on the airwaves like this. <laughs> Believe me, if there was anything they could do to stop it, I'd be back in the closet at home <laughs> with, the, with the broom handle through the... Uh, <laughs> through the uh, handles. Anyway, <laughs> so we shouldn't be having such fun at the edge of the apocalypse. But, oh, well, what are you going to do? You know, but the, uh, so the thing was then that uh, in England, and there were carryovers in England and Scot in, uh, Scotland and Ireland, uh, which I'm not going to go into a great detail about. But in England, uh, as I say, Henry VIII Set unwittingly set up, assist, uh, set up a, a situation which would result ultimately in what we call, what we used to call the English Civil War, and is now called much more accurately and I think more poetically, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Mm -hmm. Sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings, you know. <laughs> but the reason why it's more accurate is because. They were all interconnected, the wars in England, Scotland, and Ireland. And they went back and forth with each other and interacted and so on. It was, it was amazing history. But basically, the uh, uh, Parliament uh, went to war against the king, Charles I. Now, interestingly enough, the leader of the Puritan and parliamentary forces, the Roundheads, was a man named Oliver Cromwell. He was the great nephew of the Thomas Cromwell, who had been Henry VIII's major agent in the suppression of the uh, of the monasteries. And you see, it's a textbook case. If Henry VIII could lay hands on the church, why could not Parliament lay hands on the crown? Because ultimately, as you see in the coronation ceremony, not just the one in Britain, but all over Europe, mm -hmm. Where did the sacredness of the crown come from? It came from the church. Mm -hmm. So you have these civil wars, and a pattern developed that in Anglo-American history would continue in some ways down to the present. 
where were the king's supporters geographically? Now, now when I say supporters in geography, bear in mind that as with any civil war, both sides had supporters all over all three kingdoms. But there were geographical tendencies. So the supporters of Cromwell in Parliament tended to be in the east and south of England. The supporters of the king tended to be in the west and the north, in the highlands of Scotland, the islands, uh, and in Ireland, uh, uh, outside the areas settled by Charles's father, by Scots, in Ulster. Those are the famous Ulster Scots, who we call the Scotch-Irish in America, and, or the Orangemen, if you prefer. Although they didn't call them the Orangemen at the time of our story, simply because William of Orange hadn't come over. So since King Billy hadn't arrived, there was no point calling them the Orangemen because it wouldn't have made any sense. So, you know, that's just the way it is. So, um, these wars ended up, of course, uh, and the other thing I should say is that the supporters of the king tended to be uh, religiously the Catholics, the high church Anglicans. Now, herein lies an interesting pattern, though, and food for thought. Who were the great resistors of the Reformation in all of the countries that it uh, took, took root in? In Scandinavia, Northern Europe, uh, and the British Isles? The answer is the country folk, the peasantry, and areas that were sort of left out, as you might say. So notice that a good deal of what we call the Celtic fringe in the British Isles, uh, the west and south of Ireland, uh, Wales, Cornwall, then uh, the uh, highlands and islands of Scotland, they were for the king. That conservatism with a small c contributed to a conservatism with a large c. The same. But the two are not the same. Because if they were, Susan from the parish council would be voting for Trump. Susan's not going to do that. You know that. Anyway, that's a, ladies and gentlemen, that's a topical reference to the current day. If you don't know who Susan from the parish council is, <laughs> you actually do. You just don't know it. <laughs> you, you don't know her specifically, but you've met her your whole life. You've seen her cousin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Legion for there are many. <laughs> I want you to know that uh, I did I did drop Susan a note one time when she was going off on something. Uh, and I said, Susan, old gal, you and me could sing some serious kumbaya together. <laughs> so anyway, so there, uh, why do I say that this pattern is important for us in, in, in history? Well, the reason is that after the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, Cromwell's dictatorship lasted nine years. He dies to bring back King Charles, the son of the beheaded King Charles. He actually dies a Catholic on his deathbed. But his brother converts long before that. He becomes king after him, mm -hmm. James II, who was, interestingly enough, with papal approval, crowned king with the Anglican coronation right, and was head of the Church of England as a Catholic. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, see... With papal approval. I love these sorts of things, ladies and gentlemen. I really do. The kind of thing that doesn't let anybody get comfy, you know? Susan just fell over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's shocking. But it's, it's fun. Anyway, so James, as you know, was pushed out of his throne. And 
once again in England and Scotland and Ireland, and the culminating in the Battle of the Boyne, he uh, fought to hold on to his uh, thrones and lost each of them. But where was the basis of his support? Same places that had stood up for his father in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, the Celtic fringe, plus other areas of the west and north of England. All right. That was actually the first modern revolution, though, Cromwell's revolution, first modern republic and everything else. Um, I mentioned to you that Europe had begun to go overseas. Well, under Charles I, England really went overseas in a big way and settled uh, the American colonies. It began to. In a lot of ways, Charles I could be considered as much a father of our country as anyone else. But uh, Maryland, you know, was actually not specifically named out of the Virgin Mary, but after Charles's queen, Henrietta Maria, mm -hmm. who is a French princess. Just that I'd mention the importance of the French. Anyway, <laughs> so the uh, as luck would have it, uh, the uh, the. 13 colonies as they became, mm -hmm. were settled in a very interesting way. New England was Puritan. Mm -hmm. The South was Anglican, uh, well, officially anyway. And then Virginia and Maryland had a lot of Anglican settlers. Maryland had been Catholic uh, and had to be conquered by Cromwell's forces. You'll be interested to know or not that the last battle of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms took place in 1651. The Battle of the Severn in Maryland. Yes, that was the very last one. Now you know. <laughs> and they also had to reduce, as they said, Virginia the same way. So James the uh, the Second had united the New England colonies with New York in hopes of uh, ameliorating their Puritanism, making them less, you know, Puritan. It didn't work because as soon as the news of his overthrow came, his dominion of New England ended and they went back to where they had been. But um, it's important to bear in mind that the biggest part of the American colonies were very anti-Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, the only parts where they had them were Maryland, Pennsylvania, and uh, thanks to James II's great friend, William Penn, Delaware, which he also owned, and latterly, and most people don't know this, but in violation of the law, a big landowner named Sir William Johnson, who was himself a, uh, an Ulster Scot from Northern Ireland, he brought over a bunch of Scots Catholics to the Mohawk Valley in the 1740s and 50s. Again, it violated the law of the colony, but he didn't care. Uh, and when the revolution broke out, he had an Irish priest as the, uh, I guess, the northwesternmost Catholic priest of the English colonies. Hmm. And he operated completely illegally, but he was operating under the protection of the Johnsons. And since they, uh, they ran the show in the Mohawk Valley, you, you know, the, uh, <laughs> what priest? I don't see a priest, but he's right. No, no he isn't. <laughs> but there are papists openly having that. No, there aren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Of course, you'll find that it's easier to do the Jedi mind thing if you have power and money. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. But, but Sir William, I could have sworn, no, you didn't. 
Oh, I guess I, I didn't. So why is this important? Well, our revolution came. Now, a couple of important things. Our revolution was part of a pattern that you would see before and since of this kind of thing. It was brought about by the people who really had most of the power already in the colonies under the royal administration and so forth. But the four wealthiest men in the colonies in 1776 were George Washington, mm -hmm. John Hancock, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the one Catholic among them, mm -hmm. and Philip Schuyler. Well, what's interesting to me about all of that, there's a lot that's interesting, but uh, one of the things that gave the king a bad name is that you've got to bear in mind that the English colonies have been fighting the French and the South, the Spanish, for over a century. They've been fighting them for a long time. Different wars, not steadily, but, you know. Well, what should happen but having defeated the French in the uh, French-Indian War, uh, which incidentally started in America, mm -hmm. uh, the... the uh, the king suddenly inherited all these French-speaking subjects. The problem was that he had signed a treaty with the king of France that declared that he would treat his new French subjects as though they were his own born. Now, that kind of put him in a pickle <laughs> because it meant, uh, and, and one thing you should bear in mind about George III is that he was inclined toward Catholic emancipation anyway. I neglected to mention that in between the uh, in between the uh, uh, overthrow of James in England you and Ireland Scotland you'd have the Jacobite Wars, which were a series of three revolts, primarily in Scotland. Although the the last seventeen forty five to forty six was the one that came closest to success under Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, who was a Catholic as the Stuarts were. Had he won, it would be perhaps a very different world, uh, but he didn't. You know, it's one of those sad crossroads of history because his army went as far south as Derby. And all through the campaign, the prince was very young uh, and from time to time would get into fights with his lieutenants who were all much older and much more experienced soldiers. But he was inevitably right. He had a strange kind of intuition. Um, the Battle of Preston Pans, there was a big swamp that separated the, uh, the Whig army from his. And he got the bright idea because nobody could go through the swamp, so they said. Mm -hmm. Well, he looked at it. He saw there were sheep. He said, well, you know what? There's a shepherd. Shepherd has sheep. Find him because there's a way through that swamp. And he knows it. if there wasn't, there wouldn't be sheep. This had never occurred to his lieutenants. <laughs> and these were men who had had very brilliant careers fighting. These were not, you know, stupid morons, <laughs> not by a long shot. But he had this incredibly keen military intuition. So they went through the, uh, they went through the swamp. They found the shepherd just as he figured there'd be somebody. And he led them. And they fell on the, uh, on the uh, uh, English army just before they got up. So that was the fabulous battle of Preston Pans. And uh, 
it was a big success and that was that. Anyway, he gets all the way down to Derby and they had picked up this uh, double agent who claimed that there was a big army under General Wade hovering around somewhere and this and that. And Prince Charlie said to his, to his lieutenants, you know, forget all that. Forget all that. What we need to do right now is not wait. We need to move on Oxford and then London as fast as ever we can. Well, you know, England hasn't risen, blah, 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 blah. Forget all that. We can win now, but we need to do it now, and we need to go. As what he didn't know, what they didn't know, was that King George II was packing to go back to Hanover. He was so sure that he was, that he was going to have to go. But his lieutenants refused. They turned on him. And he was forced to march back to Scotland. And the result was Culloden. So that was the sad story of uh, the Jacobites. But again, who were their backers? The people in the Celtic fringe, the north and west of the country, etc. Mm -hmm. All right, so back to the revolution. Uh, there were a lot of Jacobites who had settled, especially in the back hill country of North Carolina. Uh, they'd been given land by George III and uh, in return for an oath to defend him, including, oddly enough, Flora MacDonald, who was the lady responsible for getting Bonnie Prince Charlie to the Isle of Skye after Culloden. Well, she and her husband at the time of the revolution were living in the backwoods of North Carolina. A lot of Highland Scots there, their descendants even today. Mm -hmm. Well, long and the short of it, again, I don't, want to, I don't want to spend too much time on this. The American Revolution I find endlessly fascinating. But the uh, an examination of who the loyalists were is very interesting. I've said that the, the leadership of the rebels were basically the people who are already in charge. I've said also that King George had been stuck with these French. And in order to accommodate them and give them their freedom of religion and so forth, he came up with the Quebec Act mm -hmm. in 1774, which was considered one of the intolerable acts. Mm -hmm. Now, it is important to bear in mind that one of the big reasons for loyalty to the king and the colonies had been that he was the protector of Protestantism against the evil Catholics. I mean, that you've got to imagine they see the king as an image, not as a man. So for him to suddenly switch, for a lot of people, was very upsetting. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's as if, uh, oh, I don't know, Bernie Sanders endorsed President Trump. You know, a lot of people would look at Bernie, who, as we know, is our, our savior uh, and would say, what, huh? You know, it'd be very upsetting. So that's, and, and of course, what they did not know because he was not known as a private individual. Remember, there's no internet. There's no new, there are newspapers, but it's not like now. George III had actually been very much a friend of Catholic emancipation in England and was the first uh, English king since James II to a reigning uh, English king, I should say, to uh, stay with Catholic noblemen it was, and to receive them at court. It was unheard of. Mm -hmm. Of course, he was also the first of his family to speak English as his first language. Uh, as he put it, he was the first to glory in the name of Britain. Anyway, so the revolution breaks out. Now, who were the loyalists? This who is very, very important. Well, the members of cultural minorities, the more assimilated a person was, the likelier he was to be rebel. The more he was, you know, it's like in New York with the New York Dutch. Mm -hmm. 
if a person's first language was Dutch, he was likely to be rebel, uh, to be loyal. Mm-hmm. If it was English, he was likely to be rebel. And I have to say, likely, because these things all grew, there are exceptions back and forth either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, members of religious minorities. So in the north, Anglicans tended to be loyalists, and the uh, the Calvinist Congregationalists were rebel. But in the south, the Calvinist Presbyterians tended to be loyal. And the Anglicans tended to be rebels. With the Catholics, it was interesting because the poorer they were, the likelier they were to be loyal. The richer they were, the likelier they were to be rebel. As Charles. It, as Charles was. But you see this kind of division all the way through. And similarly, geographically speaking, the areas that had been uh, neglected, shall we say, off the main, the main road, they tended to be loyal. There's that conservatism with the small C again. Mm-hmm. Areas that were more prosperous, more toward the center of things, tended to be rebel. But you keep that in mind about the loyalist districts in the 13 colonies, because they're going to come up again momentarily. All right. Meanwhile, back at home in the British Isles, this is where it gets interesting, too. The, uh, the rebels had a lot of sympathy in England. But where do you think that sympathy was centered? The same areas that had supported Cromwell Mm -hmm. and had supported the Whigs against the Jacobites. Similarly, the Celtic fringe, including Ireland, tended to be anti-rebel and very much in favor of King George. Interestingly, the, uh, the Catholic Association of Ireland offered to raise troops to fight in the colonies. Well, this idea was scuppered by none other than our friends, the Ulster Scots, the Orangemen, who did not like the idea of a lot of armed Catholics running around. They also, however, because they, uh, because they had no, uh, they, there were a lot of Ulster Scots on the rebel side, they had no desire to go over and fight them either. Mm-hmm. So they didn't recruit any of their own. <laughs> So Ireland was kind of a dead loss as far as recruiting went. Anyway, <laughs> just the way it was. So the war ends, uh, and it has a big, a big effect on both sides. It has an effect on our side. It has an effect on, the, on, the, on Britain. In Britain, it was really the end of any kind of effectiveness for the monarchy. Mm-hmm. In America, it led ultimately to the creation of the presidency and so forth. And as... Uh, Eric, uh, oh, what's his name? Nelson wrote in the Royalist Revolution. He ends the book by saying that when the smoke had cleared, on one side of the Atlantic, you would have a, a, a king without a monarchy, and on the other, a monarchy without a king. Uh-huh. And so it was. But this brings us to the odd, odd truth that... Um, our experience of the revolution and so on meant that American conservatism really would be impossible to define. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Uh, once the Constitution came in and was set up, you had Federalists, you had Anti-Federalists. Well, the Anti-Federalists, oddly enough, a lot of, their, uh, a lot of the districts they got their strength from had been Loyalist districts. Mm-hmm. although the Federalists were considered to be more akin to the Loyalists. You see, 
Hamilton versus Jefferson. Which of these is the real conservative? What does it even mean? And that that little problem has run its way all the way down through our history to this day. Mm-hmm. Big government, small government. Was Roosevelt a conservative or a revolutionary? How about Lincoln? How about the Confederacy? And there you get an interesting thing. The Confederacy, the Civil War, has been cast. You see, we are going forward. I'm not, I'm not stuck in one, one, one air. The Confederacy was, uh, how do I put this? Uh, it's been claimed by both conservatives and liberals mm-hmm. as its own. Mm-hmm. It could be, it's seen by some as the Southern Bourbon aristocracy against the, the free thinking Northerners or against the Northern plutocrats. But it can also be seen as the Celtic South against the Anglo North. It's been cast that way. You see, people people do this. Uh, they, they read themselves into the into the uh, into the movie. But I'll add a, yet another le- uh, level to it. You take the thirteen original states. Now, it's, now we're at the time of the Civil War. Okay. The areas in the north that had been uh, in the original states mm-hmm. that had been loyalists during the revolution tended to be copperhead at the mm-hmm. time of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. That is, they opposed the war. But the areas in the south that had been loyalist tended to be unionist. Now think about that. <laughs> think about that for a second. Where, 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 where is the ideological purity in all of this? Well, it actually is there, or, or more than ideological purity, human nature functioning again, as it always will. Those same areas that during the revolution were told by the people who already ran their lives, not in a way they liked, and turned to them and said, we have this glorious cause, we're going to fight the king. Well, you know what? The king actually was the only kind of relief I had from you. And I, 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 don't, I don't really think I, I want to go along with this deal. Well, 80 years, four score, four score, 20 years later, the, great, the grandsons and great-grandsons of the people who brought them the revolution turn to these districts and say, I have a glorious cause for you to fight in. Save the union. Or, or fight for states' rights. Uh, you, you know, I, I, what else you got? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I really like this idea very much. Could you like have your own sons die instead of mine? <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we, we tend to cast these things in strictly ideological terms, and I don't want to minimize the the importance of ideology, but it's not complete. Now, at the same time, England, uh, Great Britain, was very much concerned about what was happening in the Civil War in our country. Mm-hmm. Our major trading partner, especially with the South. How much would you like to guess the patterns of support for, for the Union versus the Confederacy worked out geographically in the British Isles? Same patterns. <laughs> same bloody patterns as in the Revolution. As in the uh, as in the Jacobite uh, wars, as in the uh, wars of the Three Kingdoms, mm-hmm. it 
It's just the way it was. All right. Now let's let's rejoin our European friends. Our revolution was able to succeed only because, and this is an important thing, only because the French and the Spanish intervened and turned it into a world war. Mm -hmm. I told you the last battle of the wars of the three kingdoms was fought in Maryland. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the last battle of the American Revolution was fought? Yes, it's a trick question. Of course it is. You know it is. It's not going to be Yorktown, so you can put that right out of your mind. <laughs> I got go for it. I because that's the only one I was going to say. <laughs> of course, I, mean, I told you it was a trick question. I was waiting for you to fall into the trap. The India, it was I made a battle in India yesterday, but I was. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It was a battle in India because the French and Spanish, and then the Dutch, were fighting the British on the high seas in Africa, in India. And of course, the French Navy made the defeat at Yorktown possible, mm. or the victory at Yorktown, depending on what side you were on. Well, the, uh, this had two unforeseen and rather unfortunate consequences. One is that it turned George III against Catholic emancipation because he felt that his brother monarchs of France and Spain had betrayed him. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, it also bankrupted France. Now, Louis XVI became king in 1774. And as soon as he did, he began a series of reforms, which the French, as you know, had fought a series of wars with the British and uh, various other European allies. Mm -hmm. They might outgeneral them. They might outfight them. But in the end, they always ran out of money because they couldn't really gouge their subjects quite the way the British and the Prussians could. So what did they do? These reforms were put through by Louis XVI. They had the effect of allowing the French to defeat the British. They were that effective. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it also bankrupted the country. So, five years after the revolution ended, a, a huge volcano exploded in Iceland. And that caused famine in France great hunger. Now, normally what would have happened is that the king would have dipped into the royal granaries, or if they were empty, which they were, uh, he would have borrowed money to buy grain to distribute for free to the starving peasants. But he couldn't do that because he had no credit, because he was bankrupt because of the American Revolution. So what to do? One of the things about the medieval setup was that if a king, normally a king would run what government there was, and there wasn't much by our standards. He would run it, and, and that's a lesson for another day, but it's important to bear in mind that the governance in, uh, in the Middle Ages was, shall we say, almost vestigial. The citizens carried on a lot of it themselves in the name of the king, because uh, they had a very different way of looking at these things than we do. Uh, maybe some other time we'll talk about it. But Suffice to say that they were nevertheless able to manage a uh, administering territories, quote unquote, with a minimum of actual physical force. No secret police, no income tax, none of the stuff that we use. So uh, the kings were easily able to administer that normally out of their own pocket, their own estates and so forth. But what should happen if you're getting invaded or there's a famine? You need to raise taxes. 
Well, what do you do? You get together the people who are going to be taxed and you get their permission. That's what you do. And from that system arose the British Parliament and all the other parliaments of Europe. In the case of the French, however, the Estates General had not met since 1614. And so being out of money, the only thing the king could think to do was to gather the Estates General. And for various ideological reasons, various other things, that was really opening the bottle for the genie. Now, I've left out a lot of stuff. I've left out the Enlightenment. I've left out uh, Voltaire and Rousseau. I've left out all sorts of things. But these certainly played a huge part in what would happen. Uh, but bear in mind, in Northern Europe as in Southern, it had been shown if the church was not uh, sacred, then neither was the crown. And even in Catholic Europe, the so-called enlightened despots, uh, for instance, who just spoiled the Jesuits. In Louis XVI's case, by the way, it was done by his uh, annoying grandfather, Louis XV. He was actually very pro-Jesuit, but the deed was done by the time he became king. Um, unknowingly, unwittingly, they were setting themselves up for a fall. Because if the church is not sacred, if the altar is not sacred, the throne loses its sacredness. Mm -hmm. These things were all swirling around together. But the end result was the French Revolution. Now, from that time, on through the Russian Revolution, you had a series of conflagrations in Europe. Uh, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars spread all over Europe. The resistance to them, which is very interesting, like in, in France, the Vendée we know about in the far west of the country, but there were other areas too, Brittany, Normandy, the south of France. And interestingly enough, the south and west of France were opposed to the French Revolution just the way the north and west of England had been opposed to the, uh, the Cromwellians. And it's the same thing. Conservatism with a small c at the service of a higher, a higher thing. Uh, just as their ancestors had been difficult to convert, it would be difficult to take the faith from them once they had it. Mm -hmm. And you see the same in, in all the other countries of Europe, in Italy and Germany and so forth, so on and so forth. Uh, there are sections of each of them that kind of correspond in the same way. In Italy, it's the, north, the south and the extreme west of the country versus the north. Uh, in Germany, the north versus the west and the south. You see the same division for very different historical reasons, but you see it in each country like that. All right, well, without wanting to go on too much longer, but I, I think you're, you're getting the point here. The sacredness of the, uh, of the uh, uh, church having been wrecked, the sacredness of the, uh, the, the crown would follow it. And in the different European countries, it did at different times. Uh, at the end, the, um, I'm, I'm sorry, that's my nephew calling from Los Angeles, but I'll, I'll, uh, deal with him momentarily. I don't know how to stop it though. No problem. I got a guy cutting the grass behind me. What's that? I said, I got a guy cutting the grass behind me. So I thought oh, you could hear All right. <laughs> well, that's fine. So, 
I'll call it back. So at any rate, uh, long and the short of it is that in each of these countries, as I say, you had a similar setup to what I've described in England. Uh, and the same, you find the same sorts of people on the two different sides, you know, uh, minorities, uh, disaffected areas, and very, very often on an almost hereditary basis. In Spain, you know, Galicia is always going to be on the conservative side. That's the northwestern area. Uh, in Italy, the Abruzzi and uh, the the uh, the Piedmont, always conservative, and so it goes. Uh, conservative in this case with the big C. Um, the um, one by one, the Western European uh, monarchies, France, Spain, Portugal, in the first part of the 19th century, uh, were taken over by more liberal branches of their uh, of their uh, royal families who wanted wanted a monarchy kind of like England's. In France, that wasn't enough, so Louis Philippe gets overthrown. Then you have Napoleon III, who is a uh, an interesting character, the nephew of the great Napoleon. He wanted to do two things that were kind of irreconcilable. He wanted to be modern and the voice of the French Revolution, and he wanted to be a legitimate monarch. So he had a throne that was kind of shaky in its origins, that that he wanted to rule as a proper, a proper Catholic monarch, a traditional king, or a traditional emperor, anyway, in his case. But irreconcilable. I also neglected to mention, and it's it's worth exploring, uh, the Latin American wars of independence and their subsequent fights between conservatives and liberals. Same patterns that we've been exploring. Well, um, in uh, while we were fighting our civil war, the uh, Germans and the Italians had their wars of unification. Austria, which had been the great defender of the little states of both areas, ended up being pushed out of both Germany and Italy. Sardinia and Prussia took their place. And once again, you had a German emperor and an Italian king who were would-be conservative rulers on a liberal throne. It's very, very difficult. And the, the other funny thing is that while our civil war was raging, the Europeans, just as in, uh, in Britain, read into the civil war what they wanted to read into it. So, for instance, for the, uh, the defeated uh, Neapolitans, the Carlists in Spain, the Legitimists in France, they saw the Confederacy as the, the place of aristocratic honor and ideals and so forth. And so Carlists and Neapolitans and French Legitimists went over and fought for the Confederacy. Uh, Contrary-wise, uh, everybody from Garibaldi to uh, the House of Orléans in France saw the Union as the the vessel of their of their values, but the Tsar of Russia had freed the serfs in Russia, so he saw Lincoln as his compere and sent a fleet to San Francisco and one to New York as a show of support to the Union against Britain and France. And if that weren't fun enough, Karl Marx saw the Union as the expression of their ideals. So this was an area where you had Marx and the Tsar on the same side. <laughs> this is what I mean by reading yourself into the show. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, 
Was it really? Were any of these guys quite accurate? Uh, uh, yes, no, no, yes. This is history, you see. It's much more complex than, than people give it credit for. It really is. Not unlike what? Not unlike life today. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, World War I comes along and the Russian Revolution and uh, the Austrians, the Russians, and the, uh, the German royal houses, imperial houses, are all gotten rid of. Uh, we have the rise of the great dictators who were very modern, very, very modern people indeed. I always say Hitler, had it not been for his little Jewish problem, would be very popular in the United States, at least among some people. He was vegetarian. He was pro-animal rights. He was pro-abortion. He was pro-euthanasia. I mean, the guy had it. He had it all. He was anti-smoking. Uh, you know, what's not to like? He's the new governor of New York. He And California. Hey, Cali. <laughs> you know, I mean, the again, if it hadn't been for his itsy-bitsy Jewish problem, now, even on gay rights, he was good on gay rights until the Night of Long Knives. You know, so uh, not so good on women's rights. That That's true. But although, well, actually, that's not true either. The SS had equal opportunity. Yeah. You remember the uh, you remember uh, Elsa, the she wolf of the SS, <laughs> the angel of Auschwitz, as they called her. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, I guess there were they were equal opportunity when it came to women as well. So you know, it's it's. But uh, with them, the one thing that 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 pushed off the third wave of revolution. Now we've gotten rid of, to all intents and purposes, we've gotten rid of the altar of the throne as meaning anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're, in, the, it's, in 1815, the victorious monarchs of Europe thought that they had put the genie back in the bottle, the genie of Napoleon. But by 1914, almost every country in Europe was run the way Bonaparte ran France. Well, so too, in 1945, the victorious allies thought that the spirit of Hitler had been put back in the bottle. Well... It all, defined, it all depends on how you define the spirit of Hitler. Leave out the anti-Semitism. Basically, he was a modern. And that spirit, that spirit was corrosive. Not of the altar and throne that was simply God, but reality itself. Nazism, like every other great modern ideology, was really a revolt against the real. Mm -hmm. Uh, a bit of Hegel, a touch of Kant, if you like. Mm -hmm. But I, or at least the great man who rules me, can bend reality to his will. And that will of his is more important than objective reality. Much more important. This is why, for instance, on the Russian front, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Stauffenberg became convinced that Hitler had to be gotten rid of regardless of the result is that when the uh, Germans invaded the Soviet Union, they were greeted by children with flowers. Thousands of Soviet troops defected to the German army, including General Vlasov and his entire army corps. Now, why did they do that? Well, they did that because Stalin was not a nice person. Uh, in fact, it's, it's interesting that Stalin had thought that he and Hitler were buds, and he felt hurt and personally betrayed when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. 
the idea of Stalin being hurt. <laughs> squirt, squirt. Anyway, it, 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 whenever I think of that, I think of uh, the invasion of Afghanistan by Brezhnev and Jimmy Carter getting on the air. I'll never forget this as long as I live and going, Leonid lied to me. <laughs> there, there, dear. I know. I know. It's all right. You know, it, you, you didn't know if you wanted to hug him or hit him. You know, <laughs> you're talking about the leader of the Soviet Union, moron. What did you... Anyway, control, control. So the thing is that uh, by bringing in the whole Nazi racial stuff, they created a resistance where there wasn't one. And was able to, they were able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on the Eastern Front. And Stauffenberg saw it all happen because he was their liaison with General Vlasov. So, why do I mention this? Because the Nazi leadership, which went down in flames when it could have won, purely because of its stupid ideology, that was the pioneer of modern rulership. Mm-hmm. In revolt, not against the altar, because we defeated that. Not against the throne, because we defeated that. Against reality. The third wave of revolution. Reality itself. Which, when you have leaders who are so in love with the vision in their heads that they become unable to function, Mm -hmm. that is the end of your society or the end of them if their subjects wise up. <laughs> but that rarely happens, sadly. Because remember, the rulers are the ruled. Mm-hmm. It really isn't the place of the ruled to rule. I know how that sounds. But it's uh, when I say it, it's I'm not saying that they're not good enough. It's not my place to fly an airplane. Mm-hmm. It's not my place to be a brain surgeon. Mm-hmm. Does this mean that I'm a bad person? No. Does this mean that you want me operating on your brain? I hope not. No, in the name of equality, Charles should be allowed to be a brain surgeon. No. 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 Horses for courses. And we are not all equipped to do everything. There's a lot of stuff any of us at any one time can't do. That's why we have society. <laughs> That's why we have stuff. Is that, basically, is that basically why there was only one time a Cincinnatus popped up? Uh, Would that be- sometimes yeah. he does. And that's the thing. Sometimes leadership will pop up in the strangest places. But sometimes a piano virtuoso will pop up out of nowhere. Yeah. Were your parents into music? No. But you don't even need to sight read. You can hear and just play it. Yeah. And nobody in your family said, no, really, they all thought music was a waste of time. Where did you come from? You know, my parents have asked me that question over and over again. And this is true, forget music. This is true if the guy is into baseball cards or or into anything. So it's not always true. Uh, The hereditary factor does work a lot simply because it provides the background that you're in. Both of my parents were big readers. So guess what? I'm a big reader. 
uh, my parents were actors and my dad was a writer. I write and I was a comedian, you know, this, because it's what I grew up in. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who can't also be subsumed. And a healthy society, frankly, works both sides again, both sides, you see. The hereditary factor is kept on, on uh, you know, online on the one hand, which we unfortunately deprive ourselves of completely. But on the other, uh, raw talent just popping up also gets co-opted. Mm -hmm. It's a great irony, but the nobility in uh, those countries that still have, that still give out noble titles is actually far more democratic, if you will, far more accessible than the, uh, the nobility is in republics. Mm -hmm. Can you guess why? Uh -huh. There's no one to make nobles anymore. I'd make it eat, I'd make it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you're, if you're a French or an Austrian or a German or a Portuguese noble, it, it doesn't get more exclusive than that. <laughs> but if, and, and in Britain too, now they don't make hereditary nobility anymore. They have these life peers who are, well, when uh, Tony Blair was was around, they called uh, the peers who were created for him Tony's cronies, which <laughs> was about about right. But in Spain and Belgium and places like that, uh, a person who shows that he's got something to him uh, very often gets ennobled, and that allows the nobility as a whole to continue to bring into itself the uh, most able elements of society. However, that's uh, the traditional way of doing things. It's lasted for a millennium. Doesn't mean it's gotten used to it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I mention it simply because in a system like ours, where we pretend that everyone's as good as another, and when I say as good, I'm not talking morally good. I'm not talking in the eyes of God. And I'm certainly not speaking in the eyes of the law. But we have this notion that because all those things are true, all of us are suited for everything. And we believe this because we're taught it up until the time that it's something important for us. And then suddenly that's different. Suddenly we want only the best doctor. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we only want the best lawyer. Well, no, but he's just as good. Mind you, he went to a, he went to a $5 law school in uh, Tennessee, but you know, and he's new, he's young, but I'm sure he'll do as good a job as that old hack from Harvard law school. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. When it becomes important, equality gets thrown right out the window with tolerance and diversity. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden. So uh, at any rate, we have a leadership today throughout the West that is in headlong revolt against reality and have taken us with us, with them. Now, uh, in our, our current crisis, how does that play into it? I have no idea. It does, however, make it a little more difficult uh, for the leadership to the degree that their own ideology blinds them. But, you know, there could be a lot of good to come out of this. I mean, I saw a picture of the Holy Father sitting in front of uh, Mary, the health of the Roman people. Mm -hmm. And he looked absolutely devastated. Mm -hmm. He looked beside himself. We may have a very different Pope Francis who emerges out of this, maybe a much better one.
Hard to say. I don't know. Uh, somehow, I don't think anybody's going to be appealing to Pachamama anytime soon. <laughs> um, the you know the Trumpster might be able to pull victory out of defeat with this stuff uh, if his if what he's doing works. We'll see. Uh, if it doesn't, then we'll you know, presuming either Biden or uh, or um, uh, what's his name. Yeah, uh, either uh, Biden or Sanders. I'm getting senile as they are. Uh, one of them will be president, presuming that either of them survive the plague. You know, it does go after the old people. Uh, you know, it's it's a funny thing, I must say, on this, looking at the three of them, because I'm so old, I remember Reagan's first election, when everyone was saying, yeah, but he'll be 70 when he's inaugurated. I noticed nobody's bringing up the age in this thing. Nobody is bringing up how elderly these guys are. You wonder about that? I know I do. Yeah, I mean, they brought it up to, it was a couple of elections ago, but yeah, no one said anything about this one. Yeah, and you know, if we get either Democrat, they'll be celebrating their 80th, uh, their yeah. 80th birthday in, in office. Yeah. That's, that's bizarre. Anyway, but so to, to, bring, uh, to bring the whole story, I hope I haven't bored you too much with it. No, 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 no. Um, but where do we go from here? Well, counter-revolution has, for the most part, not worked. <laughs> How do we know? Because we're here. Uh, and there are reasons for that. Now, it's not necessarily because of, of conspirators hiding in deep, dark rooms. But it is certainly true that as the revolution has gone on, it has always appealed to man's baser nature. It's always offered him what he thinks he wants, which is why it wins. Mm -hmm. It's also the case that revolutionaries are generally very focused. They know what they want. Mm -hmm. They tend to be kind of ruthless. Counter-revolutionaries do not generally know what they want. You look at the French, you look at the, British, at the loyalists of the American Revolution, you look at the Jacobites, you look at the white Russians. They were all very diverse groups mm -hmm. that they knew more what they didn't want than what they did want. You know, mm -hmm. now that made it very, very difficult for them to resist uh, organized force. Uh, they often didn't communicate with each other. They're often very divided over different things. And so this allowed the, uh, the more uh, ruthless and the better organized revolutionaries to triumph continually. Mm -hmm. um, the, in the case of the American Revolution, for instance, uh, even uh, John Adams felt that only a third of the colonies, tops, were in favor of independence. Mm -hmm. But they won. Well, why did they win? Because it was democratic, and the and the majority always. Win. Oh, sorry, no, I'm I'm sorry, that wasn't that. It was because of the referendum they had. Oh, oh, that's right. No, it didn't work that way. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's because. They knew what they wanted. They were very well organized. Mm -hmm. And it helped that the wealthier people of the colonies, for the most part, were on their side. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, just as with this virus, and this virus is a good parable for a revolution. Most people are living their lives and don't really know anything's going on until it drops on them. Mm -hmm. And that, if you study accounts of revolutions, 
that's how it was for them. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, you have to make a choice now. You've got to forswear allegiance to the regime you've lived under your whole life and swear allegiance to our new one, or you'll be punished. Which is it? Well, now, wait a minute. You're here with your family. You know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta get your, your debt, your bills paid, or maybe you gotta get the crops in or, you know, whatever it is you do. And this fellow is coming along telling you it's all different now and you better go along with it. Ah, nice kids you got there. Pity if something happened to them. <laughs> well, what do you do? What do you do? This is another reason revolutions succeed. Because if you took a poll, in almost every case, the majority would be against it. Any one of the revolutions I've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Because the majority of people are conservatives with a small C. They just don't want to be they, they just want to be left alone. They don't want to be beaten. They don't want to be starved. They don't want to be trapped in their houses. Uh oh. They don't want anything like that. They just want to live their lives and then at some point in the future die. Preferably in some comfort with everyone around them. Uh although they'd rather not think about that. Now when you say change as a result, you're inevitably being anti-democratic. Now, I'm not saying that that means change is good or bad. It depends on the change. Mm-hmm. Just like I won't tell you a monarchy is good or bad. It depends on the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Same for anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, it would, when people ask, are you in favor of censorship? That's an invidious question. It all depends on who's doing the censoring and what's being censored. Right. It's not like it's a one-size-fits-all thing that's either good or bad. You know, uh, if, if, it, if that were the case, that anything you could swallow would be food. <laughs> you know, but it's not. Oh. I guarantee you, all these papers on my desk, I could crumple them up, get them wet, and start swallowing them. It's not going to do me much good. So if, if I say, no, I'd rather not eat paper. Th- oh, I see you're against food. I get it. No, I'm not against food. I'm all for food. It's just that this isn't, for, oh, yeah, will you be swallowing it? Yes, I, 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 I'm aware I'd be swallowing it. I, I, I've got that part. It's just that it would not be nutritious. It wouldn't do me any good. Were you just saying that? Have you ever tried it? No. I, I, well, then you don't know, do you? I've been iron filings. You've never eaten either. Uh, no, I, 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 I haven't eaten iron filings. I haven't eaten paper. I haven't even eaten wood chips. See? See? There you go. Convicted of your own mind. Well, you know, you can play this game endlessly about everything. And we were trained to. It's a line of thought we have to break ourselves of. Mm-hmm. Censorship is neither good or bad. A state religion, neither good or bad. The rulers of the ruled, neither good or bad. It all depends on what they are. Mm-hmm. Worshipping is not... Are you in favor of worship? Depends on what you're worshiping. <laughs> the true God or Kali. <laughs> you know, so you say freedom of worship. Well, this is why we misunderstand freedom, you see. 
And this, again, is a very revolutionary technique. You know, you can sell an American idea if you tell him it's his own choice. Mm-hmm. Really. That's how the, the abortionists were. I mean, whoever came up with pro-choice, I, I got to give that guy a medal. Yeah. Same for the one who gave us cisgender. <laughs> I, I love that because it reduces normality to the same level mm-hmm. as the aberration. You know, yeah. that's, that's uh, again, I mean, forget the content. The technique is, is amazing. I need to give a medal yeah. for the guy who came up with the word. It was great marketing. Yeah. Well, that's one of America's greatest skills. You know, we don't have much else. We got that. All right. That we're very forgiving. Well, not exactly forgiving, forgetful anyway, which isn't the same thing. We do, we're not really very forgiving, but we are very forgetful. <laughs> <laughs> which seems like being forgiven a lot of the time. <laughs> At any rate, uh, no, I, I mention all this, though, because you believe it or not, we're coming to a crescendo and an end. Don't be shocked. It had to end sometime. But uh, having said everything I've said over the past couple of hours, this this rant, this endless rant, uh, sooner or later, whatever it is we're going through is going to pass. And I would not be surprised if it, I mean, in all likelihood, things will probably eventually go back to a simulacrum of what they were. But they may not. Depends on how much damage is done and to what. I would suggest to all of our viewers that they use this time to think very deeply about what is it they think. (laughs) Think very deeply about what they believe. Mm -hmm. Study. JSTOR just uh, uh, dumped its entire collection of articles free of charge. You can uh, look up something like 3,800 books in the uh, New York Public Library. And you've got all the time to sit down with the Internet Archive and the Project Gutenberg and Google Books. You can educate yourself, ladies and gentlemen. It's all there in front of you. And you God knows most of us have the time. <laughs> Not going anywhere anytime soon. More of us are going to get that time. <laughs> well, yeah. And, of course... You know, just think you'll be able to view the uh, you'll be able to view the Opera Francaise online, yeah. the Met, yeah. the Metropolitan Opera. It's it's uh, everybody's performing for you. There's something like four or five hundred museums around the world that have set up uh, virtual viewing of their exhibits. That's amazing. I mean, That's nice. yeah. <laughs> you know, if something like this was going to happen, it happened at the best possible time. Yeah. As long as the internet keeps up, ladies and gentlemen, the <laughs> Wi-Fi. You know, and the, the food lines don't go down. There you go. And I, I have to say, while I'm here, I need to register openly and publicly my tremendous gratitude, both to the ITI at Trumau, where I'm living, to the town of Trumau, to the district of Baden, to the state of Lower Austria, and, of course, to Austria itself, uh, for their hospitality in this time of horror. Uh, and also... Please keep the Archduke Carl, the head of the House of Habsburg, in your prayers. He has the coronavirus, as does Alexander Trugel, who uh, was a parish mate of mine and uh, was the uh, the Pachamama pitcher, mm-hmm. you may recall. Also, remember the Archduke Ferdinand in your prayers. He is Carl's son, and while his father is lying ill, he and his comrades in the Austrian army are keeping commerce and food flowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
also keep my brother, uh, Colonel Andre Kulov, in your prayers. He is going to be called up uh, for the same sort of duty in Los Angeles. Say, say prayers for everybody, ladies and gentlemen, especially for people in the big urban areas. If this thing is really quite the horror that it's painted, those places are going to be hellish. Yes. That's the big problem, the social disorder that could happen, will probably will happen. Very possibly, depending on how long this thing goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it will happen the way human beings always do stuff. And it, it won't occur to the mobs that probably rioting is not a smart way to avoid the, uh, the contagion. Never understood a, why they did that. What's that? Never did understand why. Hey, what's the first thing you guys want to do? Well, let's go wreck the city. Well, it's not smart, especially, you know, wrecking your own, uh, your own neighborhood. That's always, that's right up there with stupid. Yes. Uh, there was a, uh, after the 92 riots in LA, they interviewed this lady because all the, all the supermarkets were destroyed in South Central Los Angeles. So the churches and various other groups, uh, a day or two later, got all these buses together, school buses to take housewives from that area out to where supermarkets were functioning so they could shop. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So this lady is standing in line to get on the bus and the reporter says, uh, uh, so why are you getting on the bus? Why are you going? Well, says, well, all the supermarkets are burned down in my neighborhood. I say, well, were you part of it? Were you part of the looting? Oh, yeah, sure. And she's going on and on. Well, did it ever occur to you that if the store was looted a few days later, you'd have nothing to eat? You know, oh, we weren't thinking about later. Mm. Well, stupid is as stupid does. Uh. Remember, majority rule means rule by people like that. Yes. Because most of us are stupid all the time, and all of us are stupid most of the time. If you don't believe me, think back over all the decisions you made. <laughs> And then pretend that instead of, of your personal life being dependent on them, mm-hmm. the fate of nations was in your hands. <laughs> oh, man, I can imagine if I had been in that position. Oh, yeah. bet. <laughs> World War Seven would already be, have been uh, waged. What does this button do? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What? <laughs> the guy from airplane just pulling out things. <laughs> Well, because, you know, it, it, it is, unfortunately, I, the, the late, great Eric von Kuhn-Ladin, who was a tremendous writer, I recommend his liberty or equality and uh, leftism and uh, the Intelligent American's Guide to Europe, three of his great books. But von Kuhn-Ladin had an, a really good premise. He pointed out that most historians fight over two major factors in history, conspiracy and catastrophe. In other words, whether something has been planned or whether it just happened or, more likely, an intermixing of the two, which proportion? And, of course, you know, that keeps people running around forever. And it's, you know, they're both important important things, don't know about it. But he says what they always leave out is the third factor, which is just as important as the other two and plays as large a part. Stupidity. Human stupidity. Sometimes when you look at a historic event, you look at someone who otherwise seemed to know what they were doing. They pull a real boner. So, well, how could he do that? Well, because he was stupid. 
That's why. It's stupid. We don't like to think about that because it reflects badly on us. If the great can be stupid, mm-hmm. and when you have that innate tendency to stupidity in the in the fallen human nature, mm-hmm. now in a leadership that is already off with the fairies as far as its grip on reality, and then you remove from them any kind of ethics. Well, I think I'll draw this to a close by saying that I learned when I was a boy, long about the time I was 12 years old, and Roe v. Wade came along. I realized I was ruled by evil people. No. I had a very historically minded family. It's not like he told me that. Mm-hmm. But I knew that any people that could go along with murdering children, murdering infants, was evil. And you got to bear in mind, too, that even in popular television and so forth, abortionists were always portrayed as the criminals they were up until Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. I can remember an Ironside episode that centered around that. But he, was, he was a real scumbag, <laughs> the abortionist, I mean. So, not Ironside. Ironside was Raymond Burr, who, of course, was always, you know, if he, one of the preachiest detectives on television. Anyway. So, uh, that was that. 73, I came face to face with the fact that I'm ruled by evil people. All right. I knew enough history even then to know that a lot of people lived under evil people and had lives and got along. All right. But then Carter came along. I realized, you know, the leadership isn't just evil. It's crazy. It's nuts. And it was the the uh, Leonid lied to me speech that kind of pushed me over the edge. But you know what? People, people led pleasant lives and done all right under being led by evil madmen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then under Mr. Obama, and increasingly since, I've come to realize, yeah, the rulership are evil, and yeah, they're nuts. But they're also stupid. <laughs> they're almost preternatural stupidity. <laughs> and my my Waterloo there came when President uh, Obama signed an executive order uh, that deprived public schools of federal funding if they refused to allow boys who decided they were girls to use the girls' bathrooms and locker rooms. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you've got to understand. Let's put this in context. What federal funding means are free lunches for slum kids. Mm-hmm. So those kids can starve mm-hmm. if their schools will not allow. Who thinks like that? Yeah. What 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 sort of a moron could do that? Mm-hmm. Well, the President of the United States. Of course, it wasn't just the President of the United States, because if it had been, uh, everybody in, in the country would have risen up. You know, the guy would have been pulled out of the White House and, I don't know, ridden on a unicorn or something. Uh, unicorns being very common in America right now. But no, no, oh well. Uh, mm-hmm. So now we have this. And this 
is the ultimate reminder of reality. Ladies and gentlemen, in all likelihood, the majority of us will get through this present crisis alive. We may have had some unpleasant experiences, and we may very well have lost some dear and uh, beloved folk. But we'll probably get through it, most of us. But what we will never be able to forget is that there is a reality that exists beyond what we want. There is an objective truth that is always waiting out there. We have been insulated from it for a long time, and now it's come to call. I uh, hope that Almighty God and his mother and all the saints and angels watch over all of you seeing this, all of your loved ones. Um, sorry to give you such a long show, but I, uh, I, um, from the bottom of my heart, I hope that uh, all of us make it through. I hope that it is over in a month. And I hope that a bright Easter awaits at the end of this strange, strange Lent. But if not, God is still in charge. Mm -hmm. And if, ladies and gentlemen, this current thing means that you or I will be speeded out of here a little quicker than we should like, no one gets out of here alive anyway. So if you're prepared for the, as Carl McIntyre told me, if you're prepared for the end of your world, that is to say your personal world, you'll be prepared for the end of the world. So Amen. with with that, ladies and gentlemen, God bless you all. God defend the right and um, lighten up. <laughs> yeah, no apologies for long. I mean, people are going to be sitting at home anyways. They can, they can watch this and learn. So, if you need to, if you want to learn more, the mail still comes. Tumblr House has Charles' books. Go ahead and get a few. And you can watch the podcasts. You can send in questions and see what happens. I'm working on that. I'm working on doing the live stuff. I, I was, I was actually looking at that before you jumped on. <laughs> no, no. I mean, they can send in questions on the podcast. Oh, that too. Yes, yes, yes. They can. I mean, if if you liked what you saw, or even if you didn't, uh, you can send uh, questions to me at Tumblr House at their. Uh, their uh, uh, YouTube channel, and yes. I will be, uh, if depending on the order they received it, I will uh, perhaps get around to answering them. Yes, off the menu comes on every Monday, so yeah, send them sure do. questions. Yeah, we're going to be filming tomorrow, so uh, it'll be interesting because uh, last week, Vinny was free, and I was trapped. Now he knows what it's like. <laughs> yeah. You're going to poke the fun at him? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no. Golly, no, no. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> Shaw. <laughs> poke fun at a dear friend? <laughs> what do you take me for? <laughs> I, I, need my, I need my rheumatiz medicine. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come in. Tune in for the roasting. <laughs> that boy got to be teased and merciful. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, you know, I'm really, I'm really sorry this, this is happening, uh, though, for him because, of course, his mother is not in good health. And, you know, she's at home with him. And he's got various other, uh, other difficulties. So, 
it's going to be a hard time for us all. Uh, but be of good cheer, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, our fathers went through worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, our mothers, too. We'll get through this, and in 10 or 20 years, we'll probably have a hard time remembering what it was like before. Yeah. There's uh, a phrase in my family, because during the course of our our lives together, uh, we went through various great disruptions, one of them being, of course, moving to California. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had a phrase, the before time. And my dad, he picked it up from his two sons because he said, you know, for him, the before time was before Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. That was his before time. A time that he missed the day he died. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, he uh, uh, always said, whenever he saw anything he didn't like, disapproved of, he would say, you'd have never seen that before the war. That was his, mm-hmm. his standard line. The thing with my dad, though, was that uh, if you could catch him in one of his lines, he'd always, always laugh. So one time, uh, he and my brother were walking down the street, and dad had a piece of garbage or something, and he threw it. He just tossed it. And Andre goes, you'd have never seen that before the war. And dad just stopped in his tracks and started roaring. Because <laughs> <laughs> he even caught out, you see. So he, he never minded that, you know. I know some people, especially, you know, your parents, yeah. if you catch them in their, in their inconsistencies, they get annoyed. Not yeah. my dad. He, he always thought it was hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> well, as he, as he told me when I asked him about that, you know, for another reason, I said, well, you know, why do you always think that's so funny? And he says, well, it may show that I'm inconsistent, but more importantly, it shows you're paying attention. <laughs> so I said, well, yeah. Got me there, Pop. <laughs> he says, yeah. He says, you know, if, if you were dumb, you'd never pick up on it. You <laughs> always said that stupid kids are the easiest ones to raise. You know, this uh, son, uh, why don't you go stare at the wall? Okay, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Easy peasy, nothing to it. The problem is that later on, they're going to stay that way. <laughs> they don't grow smart, up. <laughs> yeah, they'll just, you know, they'll be, they'll be doing that in their 60s. But uh, smart kids, he said, are far harder to raise. They're much more in trouble. Mm-hmm. But uh, they tend to make you a lot prouder when they finally uh, grow up, if ever they do. <laughs> And then he'd say, I'm sure when you boys grow up, it'll be great. <laughs> but, On that note, guys, uh, appreciate you guys watching. And Charles, thanks, man. And uh, yeah, we'll do it again. You bet. Well, we've got nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> we know where you're at. We know where I'll be at. <laughs> In the immortal words of Edward R. Murrow, good night and good luck. <laughs> Take care, everybody. (laughs) Take care, pal.